Okay, folks, um, thanks for being here tonight. Let me invite you to turn to Numbers chapter 11. And we're going to be taking a look at Numbers 11, uh, one through, particularly 1 through 15. And as Robert uh, announced this morning, we're on a, a, a long-term hike through the book of Numbers. And I know that some of you may feel like you're in the wilderness. Well, you are, <laughs> literally, right, as you read through the book. But if you are in the wilderness and you don't understand, I want to encourage you, don't, don't give up the trek because it's a great story. Uh, it's a story that happened in space-time history, and uh, it's going to be a great encouragement with, to, your, to your soul if you'll hang in there and understand these truths and hold on to these truths. Now, I'm going to read just a portion of the scriptures that I have listed for you in the worship booklet. So we'll be looking at Numbers 11, 1 through 15, and the title for this is Envy. Verse 1, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Verse 3. So the name of the place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. There is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like bdellium. The people went about and gathered it uh, and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it and the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil when the dew fell upon the camp in the night the manna fell with it Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans everyone at the door of his tent and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased verse 11 and Moses said uh, to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have you not found favor? Excuse me, why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? <laughs> Did I give them birth that you would say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? to the land that you swore to give to their fathers. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and they say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I might not see uh, my wretchedness. Indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, um, where would we be if we did not have your word, your wisdom, your truth? Father, we unapologetically believe every word you have ever, ever written. We cling to the whole counsel of God, for we need the entirety of your counsel to make it through a single day. We are so weak and feeble and fickle. So, Father, would you meet with us in this time and may we understand what this passage that was written so long ago, what this passage means for us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Dear friends, you remember that it was the people of Israel and that they were slaves in Egypt. And in a very real sense, it was the slaves in Egypt that had a tremendous uh, influence, architecturally speaking, uh, for the Egyptians because they were the slaves that built uh, a lot of what the Egyptians had enjoyed. But as slaves, they were cruelly oppressed. As slaves, they were so oppressed that, um, that when their population grew, their children were slaughtered. And you would remember that Moses, through his leadership, led the children of Israel out of this oppressive captivity, and that some commentators would say that the numbers of people that left Egypt with the wealth of Egypt, if I could remind you of that, was probably a million souls. And he led them out of the captivity of Egypt, he led them into the wilderness, he led them uh, through the Red Sea, and he's leading them into Canaan. And on the way through the wilderness to the land of promise, uh, the Lord God would make a provision for his people for their daily sustenance. And that provision was the provision of manna. Manna. Six mornings per week, um, it, it would come down with the dew of the morning and it would lay on the ground and look like coriander seed and it would have the appearance of bdellium and it, it, it tasted like cakes, as I read just a moment ago, made with oil. And, and the Lord gave them the manna because the Lord wanted them to understand that he was their father, or is, he was their father in heaven. He would provide for them daily in terms of their daily needs and sustenance. And he wanted the manna to be bless, a blessing to them for their daily nourishment. But if you paid attention to what I read to you in verse 4, 5, and 6, you'll begin to see that the children of Israel begin to cry out to the Lord because they were complaining about his provision. They didn't believe that his provision was enough. They didn't believe that his blessing was appropriate. And they were not only doubting his provision and his blessing, they were actually doubting the character and the integrity of God. And now notice what they said in verse 4, Numbers 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The Hebrew here, uh, it's, it's, it's just very clear, to lust lustfully. This was a, a people, the rabble, that uh, they were on a mission to bring disruption to the people and they were 
bring disruption to the people by sowing seeds of envy and discontent. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. And then notice what they said. Do you you hear the envy in this passage? We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. (laughs) The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But notice what it says in verse 6. It's amazing. But now our strength is dried dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. So here's my question for you this evening. Why is it that we so readily in, in, all, in our thoughts, our actions, in our speech, that we are so ready to go negative on the situation and to actually complain against God and His blessings? Have you seen that in your life where God has provided for you in a marvelous way and all of a sudden you've gone negative and you're doubting the character and the integrity of God. You're, doubt, you're doubting his sovereignty, his provision in your life. And consequently, not only is it causing your soul to appear as if it's dried up, now you're actually influencing those around you through envy and complaint for their souls to dry up as well. That is the power of envy. Notice what R.C. Sproul says concerning what sin is because as we're talking about sin tonight, excuse me, as we're talking about envy tonight, sin is the core issue of that envy. What does it say in the book of Romans? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are in this room tonight because we recognize our need for the gospel and our need to be forgiven for the sins that we have committed. So Sproul says this, sin is not simply making bad choices or mistakes. Sin is having the desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. Sin is that desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. And beloved, when we are envious, or when we sow envy, or we sow discontent into the body of Christ, into the community of God, we are actually, what we are doing in that moment is we have a desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. You thought about that? When I found that quote later this week, I found it to be stunning. Because it's so easy for me to dismiss my sin, to push it down, to push it away, to push it to ignore. And I had to really wrestle in my own bones that when I'm sinning, I'm actually, I have a desire in my heart to do the will of the enemy of God. Or as Keller says, when we sin, we do the stupid thing because when we sin, we're cutting against the very design of which God has made us for. When we envy, when we sow discontent, 
we're actually doing the stupid thing because we're actually cutting against the very reason that God has made us. So therefore, point one, if envy is the thrust of this text that we're talking about tonight, what are the symptoms of envy that lead us to a holy discontentment? What are the symptoms of envy that lead us to a holy discontentment? You see, what is envy? What is jealousy? What does the Bible say about envy? What does the Bible say about jealousy? Why is it that envy is so destructive in our lives? And why is it that jealousy oftentimes is very pervasive in our lives? Why is that? Look again at uh, uh, Numbers eleven sixteen. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. <laughs> Do you hear what they're saying? I almost have to chuckle when I read this, because I just hear myself saying these very same things concerning the blessings of God in my life. But now our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look, to, to look at and what the children of Israel is saying this, that their strength, the, the, the health of their souls, their life force, it seems that their souls are drying up because there's nothing to look at except this manna that has come from the throne of God itself. What is envy? To look at with ill will. I'm not going to call you out, James, I promise. <laughs> no, but every Sunday morning I have a fear that I sit up there, I think, did I cut my phone off? Did I cut my phone off? I know. So envy, um, what is envy? It is to look, to look at with ill will. Envy is a poison that causes us to seldom enjoy that which is in front of us. Envy is the inability to live in the moment. Envy is the inability really to be satisfied. Envy is the disposition that nothing in life is good enough. Envy is looking to the right and seeing what somebody has and realizing they have something better. Envy is looking to the left and realizing someone has more financial resources that you have and their life seems to be on easy street and your life seems to be a little difficult. Envy is looking behind you and thinking that those were the golden days and we need to return to those golden days. You see, that's the power of envy. Envy is a condition of the heart whereby we're looking over our shoulder because we want to find our satisfaction over there because ultimately we're not sure that God loves us much less likes us. We're not sure God is sovereign always. And we're not sure that his blessings are fundamentally upon us. 
Because, beloved, the, the, the problem that we have in our, in, in our lives is that we have um, in our hearts, or rather our hearts are like a barometer that um, they, re- they fundamentally measure for us whether we're doing well spiritually or poor spiritually. Our, our hearts are like barometers that are calling us to be fickle when we ought to be accepting God's blessings. Our hearts are like a barometer whereby we're, you know, we're, we are disgusted with what the Lord has given to us because we actually believe that we deserve more than that. And, and we, we, we fail to remember that, that He is the one that has loved us before time began and because He knows us and He loves us, because He even knows the the numbers of the hair of, of the hairs that we have on our head, he loves us more than we could ever love ourselves, and he loves us perfectly to the point that he knows exactly what we need. And yet, even when we begin to understand how much he loves us and how much he will cherish us, it seems that we we tend to want to question his blessing in our lives. We tend to want to question his blessing in the lives of others. And when our lives should be motivated by praise and thankfulness, our, our lives are ultimately motivated by discouragement, discontentment, and envy. I mean... It, isn't that exactly what the children of Israel were, were expressing as a result uh, of their time in the wilderness? Go back to verse 4 just for a second. Remember what it said? Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. And look in verse 5. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Those two key words, we remember. But the the question before the house is, do you remember? But do you remember that you were a slave? Do you remember that though you seem to have plenty to eat, do you remember that you were in captivity, you were always being held under the thumb of an oppressor? Do you remember that you were in captivity and when your population grew, they would kill off your children? Do you remember that maybe you thought you had it good in Egypt, but do you remember what, how God is providing for you right now in, its, in a sovereign fashion with a daily provision of manna Do you remember? And beloved, they were second-guessing the sovereignty of God in their lives. They were second-guessing the blessing of God in their lives. And when we fall to the temptation of envy and discontentment, then we readily forget what's happened to us in the past, and we begin to think, those were the glory days when, in essence, those were the days of slavery. 
and captivity. Do you see how envy makes us delusional? Discontentment causes us to, it's almost like our eyes are blinded and it's almost like we so readily and easily forget. And this afternoon as I was pondering this, I was reminded of what C.S. Lewis said. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too easily pleased. And beloved, as a man who really fights, I have to fight against envy and discontentment. And, and um, there was a day and time that I could go do yard work for about three hours and I could just, I could feel the envy and the discontentment just welling up in my heart. And I would be a spiritual wreck by the end of those three hours doing yard work. And it wasn't about the yard work. It was all about the self-talk, the negative self-talk that I had in my head. Are you the same way? Do you have this self-talk that, that just causes you to funnel down into a real spiritual discouragement, if not a spiritual depression? Do you have this self-talk that so readily captivates your, your heart and your soul and it leads to ill health and you find yourself wanting to walk the path of righteousness, but not having the strength to do so. Because you see, this is our propensity. Our propensity is envy and discouragement and discontentment if we're not careful. And how do I know that? I, if I had buses outside of the door here and we were all going to go on a little trip tonight we'd load up on the buses and if I took you to the Garden of Eden back in the days of Adam and Eve and we we we, we unloaded the buses we started scattering out all throughout uh, the Garden of Eden and there's God and Adam and Eve and walking in the cool of the day and there's the tree and there's the animals and there's there's what appears to be absolute paradise But I imagine, I imagine that for some of us in this room, we would find fault with the Garden of Eden because I have. We would think God's blessing was not enough because I have. We would look at this wonderful Garden of Eden that has been laid out for us with all the blessings and we would think, now there's this tree over here that God said we're not to eat of. Why is it that God would save the best tree for himself? Wouldn't that be the question you'd be asking? Why that tree? Why is he saving that tree? And all of a sudden, here we are in paradise finding fault with what God has created. Why do I say that? This is the propensity of my heart 
And beloved, it's the propensity of your heart as well. And it is what causes us to have such ill will and to be so weak spiritually because we allow discontentment and envy to take root in our lives and consequently our faith is weakened and we don't really understand what it means to walk by faith in all of life. You see, sin causes you to be discontent with the sovereignty of God. Sin causes you to be discontent with the fatherhood of God. Sin causes us to find discrepancies. Sin, because of our sinful nature, we're looking for the flaw. Because we want to be better. We're looking for the flaw because we want to gossip. We're looking for the flaw because we want to be powerful. And what is the fruit of this in our lives? It's why for so many, you're so unhappy in your marriage. It's why for so many, you're so unhappy in your job. You're so unhappy in parenting. It's why you're unhappy with your football team. It's why you're unhappy with your church. It's why for some of us, we can't go on Instagram anymore because envy sets in. We can't go on Facebook anymore because discontentment sets in because we're constantly in the mode of trying to compare ourselves to other people. And you see, these are symptoms of envy and discontentment. But then secondly, what is the fundamental cause for our envy and our discontentment? And this will be, this will be very brief. Why are, why are we so suspicious? And let me share with you why we're so suspicious. We are suspicious because we simply do not trust God to be our Father in heaven. We do not believe that God loves us, much less likes us. We do not see, his, see him as loving, caring, and trustworthy. We do not trust God at all. And if, you do, and if you do not believe that is true, then maybe you're unaware of just how sick maybe our hearts can be. Verse 6 again. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look, like, to look at. What I, what I find about that verse is simply this. Here's, remember the rabble? The rabble were the ones, the sinful ones that were sowing seeds of discord and distrust in the community. The rabble were the instigators. They were sowing envy into the, into the community of faith. And now through all this self-talk, it seems like the, almost like the entire nation had actually talked themselves into a weariness and a faintness because as a nation they were saying, our strength is dried up, there is nothing at all but this manna to look like, to look at. Do you see the pervasiveness of that? That when we sit around and we sow discord and distrust and we sow envy in the body of Christ and it goes pervasive, do you see how diluted that is? 
and the danger it is to the body of Christ. Do you see how it weakens us individually and it weakens us corporately? And instead of faith being the order of the day, envy and discord is the order of the day. And people aren't walking by faith, they're walking by their own gifts and abilities. Which means they're not walking at all, probably, supernaturally. The children of Israel were saying this, there's, there's manna here. But where's the blessing? Where's the love? Where's the joy? There's something going wrong here. And fundamentally, they were saying in this passage in verse 6, but now our strength is dried up. There is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And what they are saying is this, you're calling us to trust God, but if I trust God, my soul is going to dry up. Beloved, is that you? When I came to faith, when you came to faith, our hearts were regenerated. The operating mechanism for our lives at this point is not Romans 3 in the way that life used to be. The operating system now is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the Beatitudes. This is the operating system of our lives. This is the fruit of our lives because we've actually been given hearts that have been regenerated. We still struggle with sin. We're still right there with Paul. The very thing that I don't want to do is the thing that I do. The thing that I do is the very thing that I don't want to do. We struggle with that. But at the same time, we have this new mechanism within us it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ uh, who lives in me. The one who died for me, and now I live by faith in him. So, if that's true, why do we emerge ourselves in envy and discontentment when we're actually destroying to some degree, our souls? And why aren't we manifesting as we keep in step with the Spirit, as we walk in line with the Gospel, why aren't we manifesting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc.? What kept the children of Israel in the wilderness? Their disobedience. What keeps us in our personal wilderness? Our disobedience. Can we ever be obedient enough? No. That's the gospel. But can't we come to this point where we believe the gospel in the fullness of its ramifications? Now listen to me. And finally begin to walk in the freedom of the gospel? Not the freedom to sin, but a freedom of Christ-likeness. Not the freedom to sin, but a freedom of righteousness. Because the Lord God of heaven and earth has given us the greatest gift that we could ever receive. And that is the righteousness of Christ. What is the antidote? I just explained it. It's the gospel. 
The antidote is simply this. Uh, John 6, 33, I am the bread of life. Who comes, uh, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. Beloved, as we finish this out, do you believe that Jesus is the bread of life? Do you believe that the manna in the wilderness actually pointed to John 6 and Jesus being the bread of life? And do you know what Jesus does for us? Jesus looks past our evil and he looks past our flaws and he loves us into eternity. He looks past. He died for the sake of yours, yours and my sin of envy and discontentment and discord. He died for those sins to be forgiven. And he looks past our flaws, our evil, our sin. And he loves us anyway. And wasn't that Zacchaeus? And didn't salvation come to that house? that day. Numbers 11 is a phenomenal verse that if you'll take a, a real look at it, you'll see yourself. And then as you take a real look at it, and then you take a real look at Jesus, maybe just maybe you'll see salvation for the very first time. And you'll realize that statement by Jack Miller, cheer up, you're far worse than you think. But the second part of that phrase is so precious, cheer up. The gospel of God is greater than you could ever dare possibly imagine. And that's Numbers 11. Father, thank you for the promise of the gospel and how, Lord, you have rescued us for yourself. For this, we give you praise. And for this, we say thank you. And now, Father, this song that we sing, Abide With Me, is our prayer for the evening. Abide with us that we would know of your power and your strength. In your son's name we pray, amen.